When I'm not hosting this podcast, I am writing books, but it is really hard for me to write when I'm at home, so I like to find remote cabins in the middle of nowhere to just hang out and write. But I hate the idea of my house just sitting empty, doing nothing but collecting dust and definitely not collecting checks. And that's why I'm an Airbnb host. It's one of my all-time favorite side hustles. Other popular side hustles are awesome too, don't get me wrong, but they often involve big startup costs. By hosting your space, you're monetizing what you already have access to. It doesn't get easier than that. And if you're new to the side hustle game and you're anxious about getting started, don't worry because you're not in this alone. Airbnb makes it super easy to host. I mean, if I could do it, you could do it. And your home might be worth a lot more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, are you ready for some money rehab? Wall Street has been completely upended by an unlikely player, GameStop. And should I have a 401k? You don't do it? No, I never. Girl. You think the whole world revolves around you and your money? Well, it doesn't. Charge for wasting our time. I will take a check. Like an old school You recognize her from anchoring on CNN, CNBC, and Bloomberg. The only financial expert you don't need a dictionary to understand. The cold lapin. And you know, here on Money Rehab, we feature change makers, public figures making change in every sense of the word, and along the way have been in or might still be in Money Rehab. Today, I'm talking to Angela Johnson Reyes. Angela is a writer and comedian. You definitely know her from her time on Mad TV when she played the infamous characters like Tammy, the nail salon employee, and Bonquiqui. So, yes, you can safely say Angela has definitely left a mark on the entertainment industry. And that's really, really hard to do. But why is it so hard to break into showbiz? I mean, there are so many dreamers out there who want to be pop stars or movie stars. All the stars. In every family, there's one youngster, a cousin, a niece, or nephew, or maybe even your child, or maybe even you, who has a dream. So I wanted to ask Angela what it's really like to try and make it in Hollywood and how you can position yourself financially to follow that dream. Angela, welcome to Money Rehab. So before we dive into our Changemaker episodes, we have a quick round of Money Rehab Never Have I Ever. So it's like Never Have I Ever, the drinking game. Have you played that? Yes, <laughs> but unfortunately with no alcohol. So if you have done something, just say you have. And if you haven't, just say you haven't. Okay. Never have I ever played the lottery. Oh, no, I have. Wait, does gambling count as lottery? Because <laughs> that's different. <laughs> Never have I ever gambled. <laughs> oh, yes, I have. Never have I ever been fired from a job. Hmm, I think I have. Never have I ever negotiated a contract. By myself? No. I always have help with contracts. Never have I ever signed a prenup. Never. Never have I ever taken a mental health day. Oh, I, I live on mental health day. <laughs> Never have I ever turned down a role in Pitch Perfect. <laughs> Listen, we all make mistakes in our life. But yes, I was offered a role in Pitch Perfect and I turned it down because I was way conservative Christian at the time. And I was like, no, I think this is going to be like a not good movie that I should be a part of. And like, I think there was one I 
one crude joke in the script that I was like, no, like on this high horse, I'm not going to do this movie. And then it comes out and it's the most amazing, you know, empowering female movie. And I could have been a part of it, but. Shit happens. But never have I ever sold out a venue for a stand-up show. Many times. You have such an amazing story, Angela, and you really put it all out there in your new book, Who Do I Think I Am? I want to start with a little bit on your background. You were born and raised in San Jose. Early on, I think you were given an assignment of what do I want to be when I grow up? And you kind of pretended to be a lawyer, but that's how you realized that you liked pretending. And so acting was calling you. But I'm assuming you were drawn to say you wanted to be a lawyer because of financial security. Were you thinking about money when you were thinking about your future? Was financial freedom important to you that early on? I think when I was that young, I just wanted to do whatever I saw in the movies. And in the movies, like people had a desk. And they had a lot of work and they had phone calls and red pens and that I just wanted to like be busy working boss. Like, yes. Okay. No. Bye. Like, I don't know if it was about money or more. So I just wanted to be the boss. Okay. But then you became a Raiderette boss, uh, which I found awesome. I actually did a piece for Bloomberg on the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders where I went inside and I was so surprised by how little money they made. And I love in your book that you talk about all the money you've made at all sorts of random jobs. So can you tell listeners if they don't know how much you were making per game? So I was a cheerleader for the Oakland Raiders 2002-2003. And at that time, we were the highest paid cheerleaders in the NFL at a whopping $80 a game. Bananas. And That's we didn't bananas. get paid per game. We got paid at the end of the season. So with taxes and everything, I think my check was like 500 something dollars. Although this was kind of cool. You talk about how you made money from the calendars and you made way more money, like 2000 bucks from the calendars yeah. that you took to move to L.A. That yeah. seems boss bitchy. That yeah. seems entrepreneurial of you guys. Definitely. So we got to buy our calendars wholesale and then you go to the mall and you'd send up a calendar signing, you'd sign your calendars and sell them. So it was like all the girls had been on the squad for a while. They got the good malls and the good stores where people spend money. And then the rest of us rookies, we had to go to like the hood malls, you know, but um, I remember this. I think you will appreciate this one. So I, um, I was done with the Raiders February. We went to the Super Bowl that year. We were done the weekend after the Super Bowl. I moved to LA to pursue my dreams to be an actress. But technically, I was still a Raiderette. So I was still in contract and I still had my uniform until June. So while I was in LA, I was doing calendar signings and Raiderette events in LA, setting them up myself. And I had a cousin who worked on the hip hop radio station in LA. Anytime he would do an appearance somewhere where he's like, you know, yeah, what's up? This is Joe Grande. I'm going to be at, you know, whatever Tico's Tacos on Friday from 5 to 8 p.m. Come hang out, whatever. And there's going to be an Oakland Raider at there signing her calendars. Blah, blah, blah. So I would go with him to all of his press events and I would just wear my uniform, bring a box of calendars, and I would sell my calendars all the way up until June until my contract was done. And that's how I partly survived in the beginning. That's 
awesome and also very entrepreneurial of you at the time. You used it as well to kind of get your first extra gig. Oh, yeah. So my very first job was being an extra on the TV show Friends. And still to this day, it's one of my favorite jobs I've ever had. And um, my friend who was helping me get started and, you know, showing me the ropes, she was like, I want you to go to central casting. And there's going to be a line of people out the door waiting to be an extra, but don't wait in that line. I want you to get, go to the store, get a tray of cookies and your Raider at headshot. And I want you to go and ask for Sam. And when you get Sam, give him the cookies in your headshot, tell him you're new to town and you want to be an extra. And I'm like, okay, this sounds real sleazy. Like, I don't know what kind of casting couch you're trying to get me on, but I don't like this so far. And so we, I go there, sure enough, there's a line of people out the door and I'm like, oh my God, she was right. And then everybody's watching me walk by with my sleazy cookies in my hand. Like everybody knows what I'm trying to do. And then I get to the window and I'm like, I'm here for Sam. And they're like, okay, he'll be right out. Here comes this guy. Keep in mind, this is like a month after the Super Bowl that we just were in. Here comes this guy walking out of the back offices, wearing a Raiders hat. Yes. Like, oh, hi. <laughs> These cookies are for you. And here's my Raider at headshot. And he's like, no way, Raiders. Oh my God. So he signed me up to be an extra right away. And I got to be on Friends, which at the time was the number one show on television. So it's like the most coveted spot to be an extra. Yes. And it sounds like he hooked you up with the union too, which is not a common thing. For those who don't know about SAG-AFTRA, I'm part of it. It's it's like a catch-22. It's really fucked up, in my opinion, because yeah. you kind of can't get it. You can't get a job without the SAG-AFTRA, and you can't get SAG-AFTRA without the job. Right. What? How does that even work? It's so crazy. And so he put me in the computer system as a SAG-EXTRA, which means when you get paid at the end of the day, they give you vouchers. And you either get a union voucher or a non-union voucher. Non-unions, we got paid like 65 bucks a day. And then unions, we got paid like, I think it was like 125 bucks a day or something. Well, I got my voucher for the day and it was a union voucher. And I was like, what? I'm not in the union, but I got a union voucher. And I was like, oh my gosh, that guy, Sam, put me in the computer as a union person so that I will get my vouchers because you need three union vouchers to join the union. And the way that you get a union voucher if you're not in the union is a union extra has to not show up for work that day. And that means they have an extra union voucher. And so they'll hand that out to like whoever their favorite person was of the day. It's kind of like political like that. And so I started getting all these union vouchers and people would come up to me and be like, hey, how do you join the union? I know nothing about this. I just moved to Hollywood. I have no idea. This guy just hooked me up and put me in the computer system. I was having to come up with all these lies and be like, oh, man, it's hard. Like, you just have to wait for your turn. And like, I knew nothing. I was just lucky. And I got my union vouchers right away. So I got to join the union. That golden ticket. You're like, first step, be a Raiders girl. Second step, find a Raiders fan. Third step, get yeah. the golden ticket. But also, I found it so interesting because you're really transparent, which I love. I'm not sure if other interviewers for your book have picked up on the little money details, but I did. Uh, you talk like really transparently about how, how much everything costs. And can you tell the story about uh, the time that you booked a role in Kanye's pilot? Like, before he was a Kardashian, you didn't have the money for the union. For folks not in the entertainment industry, I'm not sure if they understand how that works sure. with the, you know, I think we get that it's sporadic, but also that residual checks can be random and high, but you just don't know when they'll magically appear. Sure. And then that you have to pay this big hunk of money for 
being part of this coveted union? Yeah. So this was early on in my career. I got an audition for this pilot and it was a Kanye West pilot. And this is years ago. I'm in my early twenties. And, um, I ended up booking the role and I was so excited and I was in the SAG union already, but this is when SAG and AFTRA were separate. So you had to join two separate unions. Well, this pilot was in the AFTRA union. And so they were like, you have to join the after union in order to film your part. And it costs $1,700 to join the after union. And I am broke at this point. Like I don't have money. I'm on unemployment. Like I have no money to pay this union. So I call everyone I know. And this is like before GoFundMe pages, because I call people like manually dialing a phone number being like, Hey, can you donate to my union fund, please? <laughs> And I called like cousins, I called friends, like anybody who I could. And I finally got my $1,700 and I joined the union. And I'm like, this is it. This is my life, my career, my big break. I finally, I booked a role. Let's go. And the day before I was supposed to film my role, they cut my part out of the episode. So I joined <sighs> the after union for no reason. And I didn't even get a paycheck in the end so I could pay people back. I mean... See, that's just part of this Hollywood story that a lot of folks don't know. I mean, it sounds like for you, comedy wasn't the natural fit, but you were making more money in some of the comedy gigs or like a comedy competition that you were making as an extra. So were you following the money trail at a necessity that you just needed to pay the bills and you weren't necessarily super, super passionate about comedy as some people might think you are? originally? Yes. I, I never wanted to be a stand-up comedian. That's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to be an actress, but I wasn't really making any money in acting and I was getting no gigs, no bookings. Like it wasn't really working at the time for me. And, um, I started doing stand-up comedy kind of just for fun. Like I took a class, I wrote some jokes, I did pretty well. So I was like, okay, I'll do it again. And I would go up at the improv on Tuesday or, you know, buzz cafe on Thursday or whatever, just here and there going up at different spots. And, um, I got a message on MySpace. This is how long ago this was. I got a message on MySpace and it was like, um, hey, would you like to perform at our Mormon holiday party? And I was like, okay, but I'm not Mormon. And they're like, oh no, it's totally fine. We just need comedians who will work clean, which means don't say cuss words or talk about sex or anything like that. And so I was like, oh yeah, I could do that, sure. So I go to this Mormon holiday party and turns out it's a comedy competition. They, they got 10 clean comedians to come and perform for all the Mormon kids there. And so we all performed. I tied for first place and I won $600 that night. And that was the most money I had ever made in my entire life in like one day. And that was in doing 10 minutes of stand-up comedy. And I was in that moment, I was like, wait a minute. I can make $600 doing 10 minutes of comedy. I'm going to be a comedian. And that's kind of when I flipped it and was like, maybe I should write more jokes and start taking this comedy thing seriously. And that's kind of when the switch happened for me. Hold on to your wallets, boys and girls. Money Rehab will be right back. 
Now for some more money rehab. Was that also a, a switch into some of the imposter syndrome that you were grappling with? Uh, you talk about how it was heightened by not speaking Spanish, but also that you didn't have a whole bunch of jokes going into this. How did you deal with that? So I have always had like a bit of imposter syndrome and still today I can dip into it a little bit. It's like one day you're on top of the world thinking like, I am so funny. I am so talented. I am creative. Like, oh my gosh, I did all these things. And then the next day you're like, oh my gosh, what a fluke. It was just lucky. I was just lucky. I'm not even that funny. I'm not even that creative. Like, I don't even know how I wrote that nail salon joke or created Bunquiqui. Like that was just luck, you know? And then the next day you're like, girl, get your act together. What are you talking about? Like, do you and do you well? So um, I definitely deal with that imposter syndrome and it could be triggered by anything. Like being in a, like you said, a conversation where I don't speak Spanish. I'm like, oh, I'm not a real Mexican or, you know, whatever it is. And you talk about the nail salon bit. This was what really put you on the map. You went viral with this. Um, It was part of your original set. I believe. Uh, Can you tell us the story, though, and the lesson that came from it about basically giving your rights over to this bit to these Verizon folks for 25 bucks? So it was actually was a different company that was making videos to be uploaded to Verizon phones. And this particular company, who I don't like to mention their name because they were shady, um, I went to perform at this comedy club and they were like if you do 10 minutes we'll give you 25 bucks and i was like yes 25 bucks that's gonna give me some top ramen some cheerios some gas let's go and so i went and i did my 10 minutes they gave me my 25 bucks and i had to sign this contract because they were recording it and this is before youtube so this was when there it was flip phones and they were like we're going to upload these comedy clips to Verizon wireless and people can pay a dollar 99 to download a comedy clip. And then this brand new thing called YouTube comes out. And so they're like, Oh, we'll just take all of these clips and we'll put them up on YouTube. And then it blew up. So I don't even own that joke. People have asked me, Oh my gosh, you probably made so many millions of dollars off of that. I've made not one penny off of that. What I made off of that was a loyal fan base and a a long lasting career is what I made off of it. But that particular video, I've seen not one penny. It's a really interesting mindset that you were in after the nail salon bit went viral. You talk about Eat, Pray, Love. Elizabeth Gilbert talks about this in a TED Talk, where after Eat, Pray, Love, she felt like she had done the biggest thing she was ever going to do and that she couldn't top that. Can you tell us about meeting with a mentor that basically likened you to Quentin Tarantino uh, after Reservoir Dogs and was like, girl, chill. Like you have the best is still to come. Yeah, Um, I was hosting a a, a ward show or something in Texas. Like I just got hired to host something. And uh, Robert Rodriguez was there, director. And um, he had invited me to come to his studio and have like a general meeting with him while I was in Texas. Cause that's where his studio is. And so, um, I go to this meeting, but I'm highly unprepared. Like I, I don't have any ideas to pitch him. I don't have like 
anything going on. I just had this one character blow up on Mad TV. Everybody started hearing about it. And so he called me in for a meeting. And it was such a special meeting because it wasn't like I was with a bunch of suits, a bunch of executives at, you know, some big corporate office. And like you have to be on on your toes and like have ideas and and present yourself. Like it was very vulnerable. And and I was like, I don't have any ideas to pitch. And I kind of feel stuck, honestly, like after this character is so viral, like, I don't know how I am going to top that. And he started talking to me about his friend, Quentin Tarantino, who also went through a similar situation and where he, you know, came out with this project. It did really well. And then went through like this season of like, how am I going to top that? And then he ends up topping that. And, um, goes on to have an incredible career. Um, but he was able to share that with me. And I remember that being so encouraging to me and being like, yeah, let me not try to top myself. And that was one thing that he said, he's like, when you created one quickly, you weren't trying to top something you were just creating. So just get back into that and just create life is about balance. We're always balancing something. You're balancing having the most confidence thinking you're on top of the world to the next day imposter syndrome. You're balancing working so hard and then resting. Like it's always about balance. One day I'm feeling insecure and the next day I'm like, let's go. I got this. And, um, you never arrive where you're done growing, where you're done, um, learning lessons. Like I am constantly a student of life. I'm constantly evolving in my faith, in my marriage, in my communication skills, in my craft, in my art, my creativity. I'm constantly evolving. So um, in that, it looks like this. It's a roller coaster. It's, it's not just smooth sailing. Here's today's tip you can take straight to the bank, straight from Angela. Living a life with an exclamation point. I was writing in my journal one day and I was trying to manifest something that I wanted in my life. And I was excited about this vision that I saw and I was writing it in my journal. And I hesitated before I put it an exclamation point. I hesitated and I was like, don't put an exclamation point. Don't get too excited about it because if you don't get it, then that's when disappointment comes. That's when hurt comes. And it became one of those things where I had to challenge myself to be bold and be brave and put an exclamation point and expect good things to happen and to not anticipate hurt and disappointment. And so it was my challenge to everyone to dare to live your life with an exclamation point and, and risk being hurt if you don't get what you're praying for and hoping for. is a production of iHeartRadio. I'm your host, Nicole Lappin. Our producers are Morgan Lavoie and Mike Coscarelli. Executive producers are Nikki Etor and Will Pearson. Our mascots are Penny and Mimsy. Huge thanks to OG Money Rehab team Michelle Lands for her development work, Catherine Law for her production and writing magic, and Brandon Dickert for his editing, engineering, and sound design. And as always, thanks to you for finally investing in yourself so that you can get it together and get it all. You spend my-